Well, as this past fall, we spent some time renewing our corporate values as a church. If you remember, we went through seven different values as a church. One of them was to be a church that is gospel-centered. And we are a church that values being a gospel-centered church. We're a church that values being grace-centered. Focusing on the grace, the kindness, the forgiveness, the mercy of what Jesus has done for us. We always want to lift up the Lord Jesus in our worship. We want to focus on Him, who He is, what He has done on our behalf as we have received everything we need spiritually because of the work, the finished work of Christ. And so we definitely, every time we gather, want to be speaking of the grace of God. We want to be speaking of His kindness and mercy. We never want to shy away from that because that is the gospel message. That is the heartbeat of God, that He is a gracious, compassionate, forgiving, for-loving, always merciful God. Now, I say all that because this text today might lend itself for you to hear what it says or hear the words that I speak and walk away feeling like, well, that wasn't very grace-centered. That wasn't very forgiving. That wasn't very kind or gentle. And yet, we see throughout the Scriptures this constant back and forth declaration that God is compassionate, long-suffering, gracious, and forgiving all the time, which He is. And yet, at the same time, we see right next to those proclamations of who God is and what type of a God He is as we relate to Him as the God who also calls us to holiness. Do we not? Calls us to repentance. Calls us to follow Him to take the gifts He's given us and apply them to our lives, to yield ourselves to Him, submitting our hearts and wills to Him in obedience, following His commands, knowing, listening, and following the laws of His truth that He's given us. We see both throughout the Scriptures. In fact, think of just the teachings of Jesus alone, much less the whole Old Testament, but even thinking of the Sermon on the Mount, if you go and read Matthew 5, Matthew 6, Matthew 7, even this afternoon, and you read Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, what will you find even in that single message of truth that he taught? You'll find a contrast. Matter of fact, you'll find three different contrasts there. What type of contrast will you find in the sermon that Jesus gives there in Matthew 5 through 7? You'll find two, two gates he speaks of which lead to two roads. You remember? One's narrow, one is wide. Where does the wide lead? To destruction. Where does the narrow road lead? To life. He speaks of also two trees and two fruits that these trees bear. One tree will bear fruit that will, of course, be used for His glory, will be ripe. One tree will not have the fruit that is desirable to bear. He speaks of two houses in the Sermon on the Mount, two foundations. One is laid upon a firm foundation. One is laid upon sand that does not last, is only temporary. Jesus himself speaks about these 
as it were, options. The choices that a follower of his needs to make, needs to understand about our own lives. And so even in Jesus' teaching, and there's many other places throughout the whole New Testament and the Old Testament, we see this both and message of Scripture that God, by His grace, calls us. It's all of His grace, and yet we're called to respond in faith. We're called to make decisions daily to follow the path He has given us to follow. You know, clearly Psalm 1 presents two paths here. Two paths to follow, one which leads to blessing and one which leads to destruction. We're going to focus today, we're going to mention, of course, the path that leads to destruction because it's there in the text, it's very clear, and yet there's so much here about this path, this wise path that leads to blessing and what that really means for us. And as the psalmist in in Psalm 1 begins, he says, blessed, verse 1, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Blessed is the man. What does that word blessed mean? Well, I looked it up this week, and it means happy or fulfilled, to be completely fulfilled in what God has provided. Oh, blessedness is for the man who, and then he gives what we should follow. Blessedness is there. It's a Hebrew word that is plural. It's actually plural, which would denote either more than one blessing, the multiplicity of blessings, or also could denote an intensification of God's blessing, being intensified in the recipient's life as we yield and follow his truth. Blessed is the man. And so we understand there is a blessing that comes with those who seek to follow the path of wisdom. There is blessing that is provided for those who make that choice. But what's the source of this path? The source of wisdom's path that does lead to blessing. Well, the source, the author uses great literary skill in this six-verse psalm in describing this source of godly wisdom, this source that wisdom's path provides. First, he describes where it won't be found, and then he describes where it will be found. So let's look at what he says, where the source of wisdom will not be found. Verse 1, blesses the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. He uses what is known as a literary device called parallelism. He gives these three sets of parallels in verse 1. What are these parallels? Well, walk, sit, stand, and then you have counsel, way, seat, and then you have wicked sinners, mockers. The three sets set apart right there beside each other so that he might make this point of where we will not find God's wisdom, where we will not find God's blessing if we follow that particular path. Walking in the counsel of the wicked. Wicked is also a word used for foolish oftentimes in the Old Testament. Uh, Those who willingly engage, those who disobey or disregard 
God's wisdom, God's truth. For those that disregard, who cast it aside, who ignore it, who have no desire for it, well, they are those who are considered to be foolish, those who disregard what God has given them freely. <clears throat> Walking in the counsel of the wicked or standing in the way of sinners. Of course, we know we all are sinners. And so this might be a little uh, misguiding and to say, oh, well, everyone is talking about all the other people who are. No, we all are sinners. We all need God's grace. And so it's describing not necessarily just the fact of someone who has sinned. It's describing something much more than that. It's describing intention, intentionally deepening one's relationship with those who actively set themselves against God's truth and his revealed will for, for them. It's aligning ourselves more closely in relationship with those who guide us, unfortunately, in the direction against God's truth, who take us down a path that is not honoring to the Lord and what he desires for our life. And so those would be the ones who would stand in the way of sinners. Sitting in the seat of mockers, this moves another step further than just being drawn away or enticed in relationships with those who disregard God's truth. This would be another step further. This would be moving beyond just participating into leading and tempting others. For those who would lead and tempt others to join that type of rebellious heart against God. Sometimes we might actually go to the point where we are involved in leading someone else down a path that would be a destruction spiritually for them, for ourselves. We, we need to be careful where we stand in that uh, relationship. You know, these three sets, walking, standing, sitting, these seem to be, if you look at them, kind of a downward spiral effect. They get further and further, not just hanging around those who would want to entice us away from what we know God's grace would call us to, but then engaging and participating and then actually becoming one who would want to entice others to follow with that type of activity, that type of choice. Now here's a disclaimer, a very careful disclaimer. None of these phrases on their own or even combined are trying to tell you or me or any Christian, any believer who follows and seeks after the Lord in their life, that he or she should never have any relationships with those who do not know God. That's what you could, you could take that from this by reading it at face value, verse 1. Don't you sit, stand, walk, get near, be around anyone who does not fully have their heart devoted to the Lord. And if you do, well then... You've crossed the line you should not. Not at all. In fact, that type of thinking goes directly against the rest of Scripture that calls us as God's people to engage a world that does not know the Lord and needs His grace that, is sh that shines through us to others, that gives us the opportunity to be kind, to be gentle, to have the fruits of the Spirit, to have a life that is gracious towards those who do not know. What God, who God is in their life. So we must conclude that these descriptions are not an exhortation by the psalmist that we should not have any relationships with those outside of the church, outside of 
a relationship with God. That would be a gross misinterpretation. And it would directly against Jesus' teaching himself. Matthew 28 or Mark 16 or just name many places where the New Testament and Old Testament call us to be that light in this world. Instead, the psalmist in Psalm 1 is warning. It's a warning to his reader. Simply a warning that we must be very careful about our lifestyles and how we go about making our choices and that our lifestyle would not continually choose an unrighteous path that would lead down a road of spiritual eventual destruction. A warning, as it were. A wise warning, the psalmist gives us, as this is a psalm of wisdom, that we must be very careful to watch how we go about our decisions, our lives, that we do not engage in such a way in our lives that would spiral downward in spiritual decline and give ourselves to that which by nature our hearts would be tempted with. Proverbs 14 verse 12 says this, there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. You see, there's many things in our life that may seem like the way we should go about things, but in the end, it says, they lead to death. They lead to a separation from God, to a place where God is not present. And so we must always be careful to follow this warning that the psalmist gives us in verse 1 particularly. But not only the source of this uh, wisdom, this path, where it will not be found, but he then tells us in this Psalm 1 where it should or where it will be found. The psalmist indicates that when a person does not walk or sit or stand with those who reject God's authority, he will find blessing. He will find God's blessing there. Uh, Here's a a, a very important application. If you're in school age right now, particularly say middle school or high school or even college, and, and you're going through your daily activities, the things you are called to do as a student, your social relationships, your peers at school, where you are in your social life. Some of you might be uh, feeling like you're missing out, maybe, on what everyone else might be experiencing around you because they seem to be living life to its fullest, and you're missing out on all those things that they're seeking to entice you to follow and to do. And it may seem like you're on the outside and they're on the inside. They're getting what you would want to get. They're receiving what you would want to receive. And it seems like they're having so much more life experience than you are right now. Well, I want to encourage you as your pastor. I know your parents do, but I want to encourage you as your pastor of my own testimony my own testimony of of my own life during those years and how God gave me his grace. You know, I wasn't part of the party crowd. You all don't know me back then because you weren't with me then, but back in my middle school and high school years, I was pretty much an outcast socially. I was kind of uh, an outcast. And it wasn't because, you know, uh, 
lots of reasons why people are outcast in peer groups at that age. But for me, it really was primarily because I just chose not to go with the party crowd that, that was available. I chose not to do that. I did things in my life, activities from sports and so forth, where a lot of those popular party crowds existed. And pretty much the only way you existed socially was to participate in all that stuff. And I, for, for God's grace and his reasons, chose not to. It wasn't anything in me. It was just his grace protecting me. And as he, as he protected me, and I made those choices simply to say no and just go a different direction, um, I was an outcast for it. And it was lonely at times. I remember my freshman year in college. I was playing uh, college football at a university there, and uh, I was the only in a dorm of 100 football players, Division I football. I was the only player who really spoke of their relationship with God publicly at all. I was the only one on Sunday morning that would get up and go to church. It was complete. You could hear a pin drop on Sunday mornings in our dorm. For those that even stuck around, didn't go home and get their mom to do the laundry. Um, but those that stayed, it was like no one ever got up before noon on Sunday. I would get up. I had a shower to myself. That was great on Sunday mornings. Uh, the community showers back then. But no one was awake. No one cared about going to church. That was the last thing on their mind. And so Sunday after Sunday, I would get up and I would go every single Sunday to worship God and to be with God's people. And that was difficult. Many times on Friday or Saturday nights, I would, especially in the off season when we weren't playing, I would be there in the dorm room by myself. I'd order a Domino's pizza and a two liter of Coke, sit there and watch some television by myself. Not one other person was around. They were all out gone partying. And it was a difficult time. It, it really was being away from home and not having any support network. And yet, I will say this, my freshman year was the year that I grew the most spiritually in my entire walk with the Lord in my life, even to, to, to this day. That was the year that I grew the most. You know, I could have easily made many different choices throughout those years in my life. Many opportunities between ages 12 and 22 to follow those particular temptations. But now looking back, by God's grace, I now see blessing after blessing after blessing as an adult. 25 years ago, having made those choices 30 years ago, that now, over the past 30 years, God has given me blessing after blessing. Continued to give me that which I certainly don't deserve. What does the psalmist say? Wisdom's ultimate source truly is. Look at verse 2. It's not in, of course, verse 1, walking or sitting or standing in those environments, but it is verse 2, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. That's the source of God's wisdom that leads to blessing. That is the source, primary source. You know, <clears throat> Many would possibly read verse 2 and might say, well, now, Mike, how, how can you really delight in God's law? In fact, even as Christians, many would think God's law is something we respect. It's something we yield to, we follow. But we don't really delight in it. We just make sure we follow and respect it. It's God's 
law. And yes, we follow and respect it. But we also are called to delight ourselves in it. How do you delight in God's law? Well, one commentator said that the idea of delighting is connected with the second half of verse 2, meditating day and night on it. Kind of like you would study carefully and give a lot of thought reflecting on uh, a course of study, whether it be history or math or English, in preparation for an exam or in your studies, you would give yourself to it mentally and pour over it a lot. So we would do with God's law, His truth, His word. We would meditate. We would pour over it. We would give ourselves to it. And that is how we delight in God's law. And certainly, that would be an expression of delighting. But you know, our hearts, that's the thing that delights. It may not be this welling up of emotion every time you open the Word of God, but it's knowing there's a true sense of His presence that He gives and reveals Himself to us through His Word. And we have His truth. We have His very words that as we follow and yield ourselves to them, we will find great delight in that. Our life will be able to see the delightful blessing that God has for us. You know, if you think about it, delighting in God's truth is one of the best indicators that a person is a true follower of Christ. If someone is delighting in God's truth and in His law and in His Word, if they're delighting in it, if they're seeking it, they want it, they want to receive it, they want to... Not perfectly, we all struggle. If I were to ask how many this morning spent time in God's Word before you came to this service, how many would raise their hand? How many spent time yesterday or the day before? How many spent time this week? It's not perfectly, and yet is there a desire there? Is there a seeking after, a wanting to receive God's Word, His truth? Do we delight in it? On our own, we would not naturally desire to follow God's law. I would not, and you would not want to follow God's law in our own nature. We just would not. That is why when someone truly desires to delight themselves in the law of God, it's because God is present. His very Spirit has made a home residing in their very soul. And His presence is there, and that's an indicator Delighting in God's law, an indicator that His presence is there. So, ask yourself, do you desire God's law? Do, you des do a self-assessment. Do you delight in wanting to have the truth of God in your life? If not, it would be important to ask, well, I wonder why I don't. Ask the Lord. Speak with Him. Lord, why do I not desire that? Maybe His presence needs to come to your heart. Maybe he's never come and resided in your life. And that is something that we need to think about and consider. But when our heart is captured by God's Spirit, then we delight in his truth because it brings freedom. God's truth, his law, actually brings you and me freedom. It doesn't constrict us. We often think, well, laws constrict, restrict. That's just the opposite of what God's loving law does for his children. It actually brings us freedom. It brings us the freedom that he gives. <clears throat> Here's the key. You know, we view God's law as the pathway to experiencing greater freedom rather than just a set 
of oppressive restrictions that he gives to squelch our joy. Do you view God's laws as that which bring you freedom or they're just there to take all the fun out of life? How do you view God's truth? Galatians 3 verse 10 says this, All who rely on observing the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one is justified before God by the law, because the righteous will live by faith. What is Galatians 3, 10, 11 saying? It's saying that the one who finds delight in God's law is no longer under its curse. What's the curse of the law in Galatians 3.10? The curse of the law is that you have to keep it perfectly. You see? That's the curse. If you don't keep it perfectly, if you break it even once, it's broken. You failed. That's it. You don't have to break it once. And then you fall short of anything God is or would offer you. That's it. That's the curse. You can't keep it. And so knowing that's the curse, Galatians says, no one's justified by trying to keep the law perfectly. Instead, we're justified before God by faith. Trusting in what Christ has done and what He has done in keeping the law perfectly. Instead of being under the law, which often Christians now think, certainly non-Christians, those who do not know the Word of God or His truth or know God as their own Lord in their life, they certainly view the Bible, God's law, as being under it. It's oppressive. And I can see why. Certainly even history would show how many people have thought that and even lived their their lives that way. And yet that's not what Scripture speaks of as a believer. The law is how we relate to it. We're not under the law. It's not oppressive in that way. Instead, we are within the law. We are in it, not under it. How different that is, a relationship to God's law, being in it and among it. And when we're inside the law of God and experiencing God's freedom in his truth that way, then we see its beauty. We see its freedom. We see what it provides for us. And it is our delight. What's the one thing, though, let me ask you by way of application, what's the one thing that can prevent us from delighting in God's law? What's the one thing that can prevent you from delighting in God's law? One thing. The answer, well, not knowing it, not reading it, not studying it, not giving your time and attention to it, not spending any effort or much at all to give yourself to it. It just stays between the leather-bound cover all the time. There's no way you can delight in something you never expose yourself to or expose your heart to or your very mind and soul before. You can only delight in something that you give yourself to. Think about something you delight in in this world. A blessing or a gift God's given you. Maybe a hobby you have. A sport you enjoy playing recreationally. Whatever my, what is it you just delight in? 
Well, it's probably something you spend time in. It's something you give yourself to. It's something you carve out in your daytimer to give time to. It's something that takes your attention. It takes your affection. It takes your desire. Nothing wrong with that. God gives us lots of things we enjoy. But that's what it takes for you to actually find delight in it. It's no different with God's truth. We must do all the same things with God's truth. If we don't, there will not be the opportunity to delight, really delight in the law of God. We can't expect to understand and know the wisdom of God unless we are regularly taking in the truth of God's Word. The second thought is what the fruit of wisdom path is. We looked at the source, but what is the fruit though? What is the product of wisdom's path? Look at verse 3. This is what happens to the believer. He is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does, prosper. He's like a tree planted by streams of water. You know, this tree metaphor, throughout the scriptures, when you see a tree metaphor, it's often a picture of life and blessing. That's kind of what that metaphor is about. And here the tree is intentionally and wisely planted near, next to, a continual source of life. It's not just the tree just happened to grow next to the stream. It was planted there. This past spring, my wife for her birthday said, or past fall, I want a tree over there in our yard. And so, I don't think I've ever gotten her a tree for her birthday in 25 years of marriage, but I bought her a tree. And we planted a tree for her birthday. Uh, That's the Charlotte tree in our yard right there. And so, but we planted it, and every day, or, or every few days, I had to be sure for a number of weeks I had to water that because it wasn't near a water source. I had to constantly bring the hose over and water that tree. It has to be near water source to have any hope of survival. Every summer we go spend time at a family lake home up in Virginia. It's been there for 50 or 60 years in our family. And uh, I grew up going there, of course, and it's right on the edge of the lake. And right on the edge of the lake, there is a hammock that my grandmother put there years and years ago. And she put the hammock there because it was right on the edge of the water. She She loved to be in that hammock. Uh, and she loved to be just enjoying the beauty of God's creation. Well, she planted a silver maple tree right next to that hammock about five decades ago. And that silver maple tree has grown to be about 50 feet high and 50 feet wide. It's a huge silver maple tree. And it covers the entire hammock, and it's just a great place to be. But why that tree has grown so well, its roots went down, and literally, I'm sure, has that continual source of the lake right at the edge of the water. All the time, it's just thriving because it has water unlimited to drink from. Of course, everything else God's provide, God provides for it. You know, the, the fruit of wisdom's path is like a tree planted by streams of water. Now, in verse 4, the psalmist contrasts this way of the wicked whose lives are like chaff. What is chaff? Of course, separate from the wheat, and it just blows away. It's just out in the wind, and it has no bearing, no footing, no grounding, and no life. It's just dead chaff blowing around. And he contrasts the way of the wicked as being useless and temporary, seeking a fleeting reward in this life. That's the contrast he gives 
We must be careful not that our lives would not be of that, but more like the tree planted by streams of water. And then again in verse 3, which yields its fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither. You know, even when we are rightly planting and growing, we will have seasons of greater fruitfulness than others. In your life, as you grow as a Christian, as a believer, as a follower of Christ, you will have seasons of fruitfulness, and then you'll have sometimes not such fruitful seasons of life. It's not going to be fruitful 365 days a year in your life spiritually. There will be the ebb and flow always, and the struggle at times. Sometimes the hard work of turning the new soil, fertilizing, sowing is needed. Sometimes we might even feel it's an unfruitful season. And that unfruitful season may actually be God's intended means for our even greater deepening and growing sometimes. Maybe you're in that season right now. Maybe you're in a season where God is trying to deepen. He's trying to give you a greater opportunity for greater growth in your life if you trust Him. He's trying to deepen your roots. And it might feel like there's not much fruit being produced above the soil. And yet, he's wanting your roots to go deeper, not to see the fruit hanging off the tree right now in your life. Spurgeon, the treasury of David, I commend that commentary set to you highly on the whole of the Psalms called the treasury of David, an amazing compilation of commentary work by Spurgeon on the Psalms. He says, it is often for the soul's health that we should be poor, bereaved, and persecuted. Our worst things are often our best things. The trials of the saint are a divine husbandry by which he grows and brings forth abundant fruit. Think about that statement. The trials of a Christian are God's divine husbandry. What's a husbandry? That's the practice of pruning and caring for the vines and the, and the garden and, and doing the work of a gardener properly, husbandry, and so often pruning is required. Taking things down to less so that then more is produced. That's the way that God works. And then in verse 3, he says, whatever he does prospers. What does this mean? Does this mean that we are promised a guaranteed material prosperity? Whatever you do will prosper. If you do this, it's kind of like an equation. You do A and B and C will just, be, will just pop out like a gumball machine? No, that's not what he's saying. In fact, probably not addressing our material or temporal prosperity at all. It means that when we seek to follow and honor the Lord with our daily choices and activities, applying wisdom in this path, God will bring ourselves, our families, those around us even, spiritual prosperity. He'll bring spiritual prosperity and blessing, which often becomes a blessing to all those around us when we experience God's spiritual blessing. So we see not only the source, but also the fruit of this wisdom's path. The last thought, and I'll close with this, is there is, a, there is an apparent problem if you look at this entire psalm. What's the apparent problem? Well, it's this. Who here has perfectly kept Psalm 1? Who here has perfectly walked and stood 
and been around others in a way that would only honor God? Who has perfectly delighted in the law of the Lord? Who has kept this path of wisdom perfectly? Of course, nobody. No one here. But that's obvious, isn't it? So then, how can we expect God's blessing if we have not kept this path of wisdom? How dare we expect that God would bless us? We haven't kept this path. We haven't followed it perfectly. Well, because we haven't followed it is the very reason why God sent His Son. And that is what the gospel tells us. Because we have a person who represents us, who has perfectly kept all these things and delighted perfectly in the law of God and never allowed himself to join others to turn away from God's law or pursue any unrighteousness or disobedience. That is the Son himself, the second person of the Trinity, God's Son. He perfectly has kept this, and he is our representative. He is our substitute. We have his perfect righteousness, his perfect obedience. He has delighted perfectly in all that God has given us in his law. He has kept it fully, 100%. 1 Corinthians 1 said, It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. You see, being in Christ, and Christ is the wisdom of God. You see, that is the very essence of wisdom, is Christ and all that he's done for us. That we would be able to be in that path of blessing, not because of what we would do, though we are called to make these choices, but because of what Christ has done for us.